0: Welcome back to The New England Take, your weekly hangout with experts, policymakers, local business owners, and interesting people in New England. Check out Take.com to listen to the podcast version of the show. Be sure to follow and share New England Take on Twitter and Facebook. For this segment, we're going, to be dis- we're going to discuss New Hampshire Healthcare Voices. More of them is available at healthcarevoicesnh.org, what they do, and their letter encouraging people to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Joining me is Dr. Walter King, an advisory board member of this group. He's a retired R&D executive who has worked at companies like GE Healthcare, Watman, and Abbott Diagnostics. Thanks for joining me for the show today. And to start off with, can you just describe what Healthcare Voices of New Hampshire is?
1: Yes. Uh, thanks, Adam, for having me on. Um, healthcare Voice of New Hampshire was uh, a volunteer organization founded in January of this year to garner the uh, voices of healthcare workers who are concerned about the COVID pandemic and <clears throat> wanted to lend our voice to encourage people, to educate people as to uh, what we were up against in this pandemic and what we needed to do to get this pandemic under control. And our first uh, effort was to uh, encourage uh, and educate people on the benefits of vaccination.
0: Yeah, and definitely that is a hurdle, (laughs) especially regarding, I mean, this this happens from a... I'm a, a, a research and development perspective. This was exceedingly fast. How quick the the vaccine came around, and people, yes. but people tend to overlook the fact this the basis for it. The mRNA uh, process has been around, investigated for more than a dozen years.
1: Yes, more than a dozen years, and so um, it just that it got in the spotlight very quickly. And I think it was um, people's concerns were centered on the fact that uh, how can this vaccine be developed so quickly, even with this new technology. Um, but commensurate with the, the advent of the technology is the effort on the part of the government to ensure that a certain number, amount of the vaccine would be developed. So they actually said that if you develop this vaccine, your clinical studies show that it works, we're going to buy a lot of vaccine. So that took the financial risk off of a lot of these companies. All they had to do was set up their clinical trials so that you know they can get their expected um, outcomes, and uh, they didn't have to do a hard sell to try to get their vaccine sold. Which you know, it's a, it's a money making business, so you have to you have to if you de risk that, I think that makes it a lot easier. And they also structured the um, the clinical approval process so that um, if they had a candidate vaccine, they can go ahead and manufacture it. Um, usually these things are all sequential steps. They did these things, a lot of these things simultaneously, so that compressed the timeline. And they were allowed to to do a modification of the clinical trial review where they can do interim analysis and and look at the data. If it's that convincing, they don't need to finish. They can continue the trial, but they can give provisional approval before that. So all those things really compress the timeline. But um, as I have said in the past uh, several months, nothing has been compromised with regard to the criteria, which, you know, the FDA said, okay, we will give you provisional approval.
0: Yeah. People seem to have this, it's the evil government and they're going to be, they're just not going to care and they're going to distribute it everywhere. in these evil corporate pharmaceutical industries, they don't care about the people. I mean, they're from the pharmaceutical companies, there's a tremendous financial and legal Issue that they will encounter if they just push it off to market and it ends up killing 50 percent of the population right. to, And yeah. from the government perspective from government policy perspective They I think ultimately the government's especially on the on the conservative side of the aisle They want to kind of make it easier for drugs to come to market without having so much bureaucracy in the way and so if they rush this off to market it's gonna kill that whole way of thinking
1: Yes, and, and and the other, you're absolutely right, Adam, in that, you know, it isn't just once the, the vaccine or the drug has been approved, it's also these studies, many of the, most of these studies uh, that are therapeutic-based safety trials keep going on and on and on after, long after um, the population has been, uh, has had the vaccine or the drug available because they want to look at the long-term studies. And it's because... In this particular instance, there's been all this, this um, false information that somehow was gonna alter your DNA and all these other things. And you know, um, we know as scientists that's not gonna happen because we know how messenger RNA works in the body. Um, but just like any other therapeutic, we can't anticipate everything. There can be some side effects, some long-term effects. And so I think that government shouldn't be looked at as bad. They're looking out many, many years past when a drug is approved to make sure that it continues to be safe and, and effective.
0: And with the COVID-19 uh, virus, I mean, there is a it was known from the get go that you're likely going to need to continue to be vaccinated against this on a regular basis. But just because of how quickly it mutates and whether it's booster shots or moving to an oral uh drug that's just easier to get people vaccinated Mm -hmm. on they want this rollout to be effective because they know down the road it's going to be their butts on the line the government's not necessarily going to be the ones buying up everything and they're going to need to to get future drugs on the market to protect people the population against the virus right but you know there's
1: a very well-known model that's already on the market that's influenza right every year Mm -hmm. Um, the the uh, CDC uh, and other health authorities make an estimate as to what is the vaccine that they're going to make because there's so many different strains out there over the uh, 100 or so years that we've been monitoring it. And it's really a guesswork. You know, every year you hear, oh, this year's, last year's vaccine didn't quite, wasn't quite effective. It's because they kind of guess wrong, but it takes so long to make the vaccine. You just can't make a last minute decision like that. Coronavirus isn't going to be quite as uh, unstable as influenza simply because the genomic structure of the virus is very very different than the coronavirus is very very different uh, than influenza which is very very highly susceptible to genetic changes but nevertheless we're already seeing that there are going to be those kinds of mutations that happen and that's just the result of nothing insidious about the virus all viruses have a certain error rate when they replicate themselves and um, this is i think the part of the the part of the science that maybe some people don't quite fully understand that oh we're 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 60 vaccinated we should be safe you you probably are safe all the data says that once you're vaccinated you're probably vaccinated like you would be against anything else like measles. but i think that what concerns scientists is that in this in this age of global travel and commerce um, something that, that starts in one part of the world can come into the United States very quickly. And it isn't so much that it is a risk to the people who are vaccinated, it's a risk to the people who are not vaccinated. And we know from our conversations with other groups that there are pockets in our, in our society and in New Hampshire where uh, there are certain cohorts that are reluctant to take the vaccine. And these are communities. They're not, not just individuals. And I think a, a, a more virulent strain can spread very, very quickly to those unvaccinated people. And I think that people kind of maybe, some people may be a little uh, relaxed and they're thinking, oh, I don't need to get the second shot or, well, oh, everybody's protected. But you're the one that's going to get it. And um, those are the ones that the public health officials are concerned about.
0: There's been a lot of back and forth. I don't know how much you can touch upon this, but I mean we need a certain level for the quote herd immunity that we've heard from the get-go which what percentage do you think roughly like mm-hmm. speaking of ballpark would it be between people who have had the virus and people who are vaccinated before hopefully we can stop worrying so much about this mass uh vaccination cycle we're in the middle of right now
1: that's a good question i i think that you know when they said 70 to 80 percent that's based on other viruses and other pandemics Healthcare Boys in New Hampshire put out a a, a second um, broadcast of news encouraging people to get the vaccine. And we showed a a very telling graph of how immunization has resulted in the decrease in the incidence. the vaccination started around December. And at that time uh, we were still had a very, very high case rate. But then with every passing week and every passing month, that the vaccination continue. It was, it was, uh, shown at the same time that the COVID cases started dropping dramatically. I mean, really dramatically. And this week we have only had like, I think we reported like 39 cases yesterday or something. It's like that. Yeah. It's just
0: crazy. Yeah, it's just crazy. So
1: if anybody doesn't believe that vaccinations don't want well, look at the graph, you know, when the vaccination rate goes up, everything else goes down. So, you don't need much more than that to say that this is not this isn't by chance that this happens. So we know from the scientific perspective, the public health perspective, that vaccinations are the way to get it under control. But we had to do the mask because earlier, because we didn't have the vaccines, and that was the only way you could prevent it spread. And we know that COVID was more infectious than influenza. And the other part of it, the other half of the story is that when people started to wear masks. The, the cases of influenza dropped dramatically. We haven't seen low, such low cases, so obviously it works. So I think that we science has shown that the measures that, that they recommended and the public health officials recommended have worked, but I think it's been politicized, unfortunately. But at the same time, we've also been talking with other groups um, that have relationships with communities that have a resistant population. And we realize that there isn't, it's not monolithic, the people who don't want to take it. There are a variety of reasons um, as how people get information. So it's a combination of many, many factors. Some of it cultural, uh, some of it is access to vaccines too. Um, And all those contribute to certain groups not getting vaccinated at the rate they should be getting vaccinated.
0: There's also just a lot of people, I mean, especially in modern times. You figure when the influenza vaccine was created, there was, Mm -hmm. what, an eighth or the tenth the number of people that are in the world today to be able to, to push off the amount of... To, to vaccinate the volume of people i feel like that's part of the reason why new hampshire has done so well is we're kind of small and it's easier to kind of get out to the bigger population centers because they're not so highly concentrated as opposed mm-hmm. to new york that i mean they they've they have a lot of government control and they're still having a heck of a time getting the vaccine sure. rolled out sure
1: it is uh, i mean i think that new Hampshire's done relatively well i think there was a little bit of uh news about the fact that the cdc's data and the new hampshire state data didn't quite match up i think they originally reported that we were at about 70 to 72 percent of our population immunized at least once that turned out that wasn't quite oh is that where that came
0: from i was reading the news i'm like what is going on because i did the news reading on kxl in the morning one day i was like holy crap got like almost 80 percent vaccine then i read it the other day i was like 50% 50% have had at least one shot.
1: I'm like, yeah. what? Then 50% I think it's more like two shots. But yeah, some percent. Yeah. So, but I, I was, I'm surprised So to your earlier question, you know, what do we need? You know, the herd immunity is certainly uh, something that we want to shoot for. But if anything, this, this, not that we should let our guard down, but we're only at 60% and we have seen a dramatic drop in the number of cases. So it's not a hard and fast rule that 80% of the population has to have herd, herd immunity. To every single respiratory virus that, that comes out, I think that it depends a lot about the biology of the virus and uh, among other things.
0: It's also important for the the healthier portion of the population to get it because they're going to there's a certain portion of the population just isn't able to get the, the vaccine. Can you, Can you speak to that angle on it?
1: Well, I think access to it is to to be able to go to uh, something as simple as a while We can drive to a place where they're immunizing people. That seems like it's fairly simple, but there's a lot of people who can't, elderly people who are particularly at higher risk, people who have a lot of underlying uh, health conditions, comorbidities, who by going out to public during this time where the disease was higher, was a real risk to them. So, you know, you have to be able to accommodate those kinds of people because, um, many of them do want to get vaccinated, but it's just too hard or too risky for them to go out and get vaccinated like the rest of us. I mean, some of these lines you hear in Dover, I mean, the lines back in January, there were really, really large lines and large numbers of people. So I think that that, that is, doesn't seem like a barrier for most of us who live normal, you know, the, 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 have a lot of freedom in our lives, but I think for a lot of people it is, particularly in the case of uh, this disease, where it started out in uh, assisted living centers and senior places, where people were confined, so you know that tells you who the at-risk population is. And when you look at the mortality data, it's, it's largely confined to people over 60 years old. So, as well as in in um, for certain people, it's just like kind of like voting. Same thing, you know, people holding down two or three jobs, they don't have time to go out and vote. So it, it's what seems like it's fairly simple for most of us. Maybe be a challenge for a
0: lot of people. And you're seeing the, the few deaths that are still happening, they're primarily in people that are ages 60 and up. It seems like the deaths for people that are 40 and up has basically stopped in New Hampshire. It's a handful of people that are 60 and up that are, have got the virus a few weeks ago or are succumbing to it still.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. And, and you know, so I, I think the question is, is oh, it's a, it's a disease that's a risk to older people. But, you know, if you're a young parent um, and you have an adolescent child, uh, if you want to make some comparisons between influenza, influenza is, all the way, uh, uh, it is a serious disease, like 30, 40,000 people die every year from it. Um, but if you look at the, uh, the death rate among adolescents, age 11 to 17, the COVID death rate is 10 times higher than influenza. So if you were a parent of a young child, would you want to put your child at, that, at risk like that if it's, the risk is 10 times higher? You know, it's probably not necessarily an easy decision, but the numbers are there. So I think you have to be cautious.
0: Now, how is Healthcare Voices NH going to uh, continue to work towards getting people um, to encourage them to get the vaccine?
1: Well, I think that we, we have uh, a group of about 1,200 people who signed up um, to advocate for vaccines. And we have a, a significant number of those people who are willing to do more. And I think that the, these people represent communities all over the state, cover like all but two of the counties, something like that. And I think that we need to see and approach those volunteers to say, okay, you know, are you, do you know healthcare leaders or community leaders who have the ears of the community and try to get them to, um, I don't want to say educate, but give them the information that these communities leaders need to be able to talk to the, uh, the members and the citizens of their towns and communities to um, tell them why it's important to get, particularly in those areas where vaccination rates are low. So when you look at overall New Hampshire, that's great. The majority of those are more in the populated rural areas. start out a little uh, bit slower but they've caught up with us so we have to find those pockets in those communities and a lot of them are in large communities too where we have to be able to get the message out but it's you know for a lot of reasons some people don't trust the government and when you go to the immunization things that were happening uh, in these uh, uh, sites there were national guard troops in uniform you know so for a lot of people who are new to this country, when they see soldiers in uniform, they may not be so comfortable doing that. So I, I think that that's a part of the, part of some of the challenges is how do we understand what these communities' concerns are and try to work around them. And I think it's really important that it is someone that they trust, it could be their doctor or it could be a community leader, a pastor, someone who owns a barbershop where everyone kind of sits and chats. I mean, those kind of places I think, are good places, nodes in which to get information out to.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Okay. Walter King of HealthcareVoicesNH.org, and there's about 15 million other things looking at your profile there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Okay. Thank you for having me.
0: Bye-bye. You're listening to The New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and NHTalkRadio.com. Be sure to check out TheNewEnglandTake.com to get the back episodes of the show.